0: Welcome to DLA Piper's Tech Law Podcast Series with me, Martin Bartlam, International Group Head of Finance, Projects and Restructuring, and Fintech Global Co-Chair at global law firm DLA Piper. In this podcast, we are delighted to have an eminent industry executive join us to explore the future of the fintech industry, all as part of our preparation for the widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019, which is scheduled for Tuesday, 15th of October at ETC Venues, 155 Bishopsgate. In London via the DLA Piper social media channels do look out for further details of that major conference which will be attended by 350 senior legal and commercial executives the agenda will include a panel discussion which I will be moderating on the day under the banner of competitors or collaborators the financial services versus FinTech challenge Whilst I'm a fintech lawyer advising on technology solutions for emerging and traditional funding structures, here I would like to extend a special welcome to Giles Andrews, co-founder of Zopa. Hi Giles, for the benefit of our listeners, it'd be great if you'd give us a brief introduction of your professional background.
1: Thanks very much, Martin, and good to be here. So you're right, I was one of the founders of Zopa back in 2004, and we invented something quite interesting. We invented peer-to-peer lending, so UK first, a business model that's been copied all over the world now, and has led to businesses like Funding Circle, IPOing on the London markets, and valuations of over a billion pounds. So so a real business model that's here to stay. At Zopa, we, we are a consumer lending business. We lent uh, about a billion, just over a billion pounds last year. Uh, we've lent over four billion pounds in total. And really excitingly, we announced plans two years ago to launch a challenger bank and we're currently at the end of our sort of license application process with the PRA and the FCA so we we achieved uh, authorization with restrictions um, status uh, in December last year which is the sort of therefore puts us in the the home straight to uh, launching our bank which I therefore hope we'll do uh, sometime this year and excitingly be able to extend our range of consumer products from the simple personal loans and peer-to-peer investment product we offer today to uh, a broader range of lending products, including things like credit cards and some more auto finance than we currently do, while also obviously being able to take deposits and and pay uh, a return to savers as well as uh, investors uh, of our peer-to-peer product. Fantastic. But maybe just as a start-up, you're
0: saying you started as one of the the, the very earliest, maybe the inventors of the the peer-to-peer lending model back in 2004. So was that was that the, the good old days? Do you do you think those were the days when you, you really enjoyed things, or, or now we look at the fintech world, which is much more advanced? You know, is is now the time to be in this space? So how how do you see this?
1: Well, so the space has evolved. I mean, in some ways, the, the, the name didn't exist. Um, um, some people have charitably described us as as the first fintech business uh, because it was a combination of of technology and finance, using technology to build a more efficient. and and we think better service-providing financial services business. But in those days, people didn't know what you were talking about, if you used the word fintech. And now, obviously, it's become a much more, much more current term, both in terms of the press and the regulators' understanding of it, and increasingly, importantly, consumers' understanding of the benefits that fintech businesses can provide. But I wouldn't say then was better or worse. I think as the sector has evolved and grown up, then the role of regulation has changed, and I would welcome that. I don't know if you know the background, but but we when we launched Oprah it was a completely unregulated activity and in a way that was kind of helpful because as a cash constrained startup, you don't necessarily want to engage with too much heavy lifting with regulators before you launch and prove your product works with consumers or has consumer demand. I think that there's obviously a much greater understanding of what fintech businesses are so that the regulator clearly has a different view. Um, of, of of the opportunities and risks and threats yeah. of fintech businesses and we can talk about that because it's an evolving feast but also the the, the world the, the media uh, and importantly consumers understand some of the benefits that fintech businesses can provide it'd be really interesting I think for some
0: of the listeners just to, to hear the experience of actually those early days of getting started I mean now now up a big name and everybody's familiar with it, but it must have I, I know working with a lot of startup businesses, particularly in this fintech space, even now, you know how challenging it is. So what was the experience like for you? How did you, you know, put together your team initially and you know, what was the thinking behind your real the really early days of starting out?
1: So we had a pretty simple thesis that retail financial services or the financial services that consumers received was pretty broken, both in terms of the value consumers got. Uh, the deals they got out of financial services, and also the service they received. And uh, as a hypothesis, I think that was only proven to be even more true than we thought it was by the events of the crisis. So we came up with this model of peer-to-peer lending, connecting people who had some money with people who wanted some money, and doing it directly, rather than through a bank balance sheet, as a very efficient transfer of funds, and obviously with a reasonable amount of technology to make sure that it all worked. And we were lucky enough to find a way to do that and launch the business without troubling the regulator because uh, as you you well know given what you do for for a living uh, the regulator regulates things they're told to regulate and nothing we were doing fell into the remit of anything that they were told to regulate we didn't take deposits because no money ever sat on our balance sheet we didn't manage investments so we were an investment manager so so we weren't captured if you like by by the more obvious regulatory buckets that applied to various businesses and financial services and that was a huge benefit to a cash constrained startup to be able to get going without mm-hmm. yep. the enormous over- overhead of having to engage with the regulator we did try and engage with the regulator and we we're sort of told well read the manual and if you don't think it applies to you then there's nothing to talk about and if you do think it applies to you then uh, you better come and tell us what authorizations you're going to apply for I think I mean, all the, the people in this industry would uh, would agree I mean
0: that the, the regulatory framework can be a real constraint on new businesses coming into the financial services sector, but partly because, as you alluded to, if, you, if you're subject to regulation in the early stages when you don't have a lot of capital, you don't have a lot of cash flow, you know, actually putting the, the money together to be able to comply with regulatory requirements can be you're quite quite restrictive.
1: So, so the worst thing that can happen to a business is that it gets caught by a regulation which wasn't written? to capture them and therefore isn't really appropriate and puts a whole load of burden on a business without any practical benefit to the consumer and there's quite a good good analogy of that in the US. So peer-to-peer lending in the US is regulated by the SEC because the SEC correct in our view because we looked heavily into this because we actually operated a business in the US for a while. So the SEC has a very clear understanding of what it deems to be a security. Securities law was written in the 30s I believe as a result of the Great Depression and lots of widows and orphans getting ripped off by snake oil security salespeople. So some very onerous and uh, regulation put in place, which actually wasn't really mirrored over here, and their definition of a security included such a thing as a promissory note with, an, with you know an offer to repay a loan with interest could be deemed a security. So you could argue that someone who borrowed money in the US was effectively selling a security to the person who was lending them the money. Now, if you're a bank, the banking laws sort of trump that, so it, goes, it gets overwritten, but at an individual level, that could be deemed to be uh, involving securities law. And even if the SEC were to take a view that the individual consumer who was borrowing money wasn't really selling a security, any platform that operated in the middle and was aggregating these products is, is deemed, could be deemed to be a broker-dealer. So the result was that the peer-to-peer industry that copied us, and launched in the US uh, in 2006 with a company called Prosper and then followed by a company called Lending Club in 2007, operated in pretty similar way to the way we do in the UK and got shut down by the SEC because they were selling securities or deemed to be selling securities. So they had to go through an incredibly onerous process which cost them a huge amount of money to convert their platforms into registered securities program providers. And if you then took a step back and said, well, what did that do for the consumer? Precisely nothing. Um, It introduced actually a a, a bizarre situation where the platform ended up sitting in the middle of the trade and effectively became a counterparty. And there wasn't a direct link between a lender and a borrower, which is a huge strength of our model in the UK, because ultimately, if the platform were to fail, the lender still owns title to an asset um, and a claim from the borrower. But in in this complicated US example, the platform sat in the middle, so in the event of platform failure, there will be an unholy mess where lenders would not have a direct claim. So we started talking about you know, how difficult
0: it is for a startup to, to, to comply with some of the costs and certainly regulation is a hurdle on that. But obviously there's a lot of other costs there as well. How, how did you approach the capital raising process in those early days?
1: So we uh, raised money from, from the venture capital community. We recognised that you know, it's un- unlike starting an e-commerce business where you could easily get a sort of minimum viable product out there selling some stuff to people at pretty low cost and you could potentially bootstrap that or, or, or raise money from family and friends and prove it works before you then raise venture capital. We were dealing with people's money. So from day one, we had to have a very robust platform and set of systems to safeguard their money. Um, so we concluded that therefore we would need to raise venture capital from the very beginning. Um, and when we went into the market in 2004, I think we were quite fortunate in our timing that the venture capital industry was beginning to wake up, having been in hibernation since the dot-com crash. Um, and uh, had funds to invest and venture capitalists typically back big ideas that may have risk associated with them but potentially can change industries and uh, we were lucky enough that our idea was received as such so we we raised pretty substantial amounts of money in 2004 and were able to launch a business in 2005. The fact that we were able to do so without being regulated was a huge advantage but that's also a double-edged sword because other people can copy your solution that doesn't need regulation. And if you're not regulated and you're dealing with consumer money or uh, people's money, consumers or businesses, then there's quite a lot of onus, if you like, on the moral integrity and probity of the people operating the platform, because that's ultimately their, their adherence to the more general laws of the land become what's important. And we became quite concerned when a couple of what looked like very fly-by-night copycats appeared, as long with some pretty respectable-looking Copycats. So we decided to work with the respectable versions to actually do something really unintuitive, which was lobby for regulation, because we believed that we were all ambitious companies. We believed Mm -hmm. we'd become quite big one day, and by the time we're quite big, we're dealing with large amounts of consumer money. And someone would say, this should be regulated. We didn't design the framework, clearly that's the job of the regulator, but we had an input at least into what the regulation would look like to, to avoid some of the pitfalls of them simply copy and pasting a set of regulation from another industry and applying it to our industry. And we actually got some good attention from them, from the Treasury initially who, who pushed for it and then, and then followed up by the SCA in designing a set of regulation for peer-to-peer lending, which is unique in the world still, that it is a set of regulation that is unique to our
0: industry. It's interesting and very, very, very relevant currently to the debate that's going on in the context of uh, digital assets and digitalization of financial instruments, because, again, there there's been obviously a lot of working with regulators, working with government in order to try and get an understanding of what that means, but also apply some underlying principles and codes of behavior to try and protect protect the, the customers the consumers um, but still allow flexibility to enable new businesses to to go and and invest and and succeed in this this market so i'm quite interested that you 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 actually lobbied for regulation because certainly what we're seeing now is maybe looking more at applying a, an industry standard and, and, and getting regulators to accept the industry players are uh, are willing to Commit to a standard, so maybe maybe there is. Yeah, so I think I think
1: so. We actually we 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 deliberated uh, extensively around whether or not we should push for some kind of standards-based approach. Mm -hmm. In fact, so the first thing we did was we formed a trade association called, Mm -hmm. imaginatively, the Peer-to-Peer Finance (laughs) Association, Uh, and and I became its chairman. And we set out a set of operating standards. And we thought, well, that's a good start, and we can get the media involved in um, in understanding that these show that we have a very responsible view of the way we treat people's money but standards only work for people who sign up to them and we did find that and while a number of the larger and and I thought much more respectable members of of, of our industry signed up, joined our association and signed up to the standards and uh, signed up to being policed by other members and generally speaking members of a trade association are going to be more aware of what's going on than, than a regulator, it's not to denigrate a regulator but they have issues with bandwidth and resource. So so that that's quite an effective self-regulatory body, but it only works as far as the people who sign up to it. Our experience was that perhaps there wasn't enough of a sort of quality mark or differentiator for those businesses that had signed up versus those that hadn't. And we therefore were very alarmed that given how young the industry was and how the industry is completely dependent on consumer trust, if there were to be a blow up, or someone were to misbehave in the sector who wasn't in our association or hadn't signed up to our standards that would reflect very badly on the industry as a whole and potentially existentially and there were a couple of very small failures and thankfully they weren't large enough to to really capture the imagination but they were shots across the bow if you like that this this could play out badly if, if there was a, a larger failure. So, so given that we couldn't get everyone to sign up to the same self-regulatory set of standards, we thought, well, we need to get this done externally and who better to do that than the regulator.
0: I mean, it's, it's really interesting and I think there are lessons to be learned from that for what's currently you know, going on in terms of trying to build principles around some of the developments in the industry there currently so that's interesting from the insight as to you know, how you tried to tackle that and, and where that, that came, came to. You know, quite interesting uh, to hear your views on uh, on the relationship with the regulator. Now, but partly because the survey that we did, uh, DLA Piper did a, a major survey of the, the, the financial services market and the impact of technology there. and We found that a lot of respondents took the view that the, the approach and the attitude of regulators in different markets was a major driver of uh, attracting activity and development of, of activity in the space. So, for example, jurisdictions like Singapore and the UK came out as relatively positive in terms of the engagement of, of regulators, whereas some of the others, such as Hong Kong or the US, came out as, as relatively restrictive in in terms of the attitude of regulators. Are you still in contact, working with the FCA, say, or other regulators in terms of? Uh so,
1: so I'm not I'm not working directly personally with the FCA, but I did for a number of years, and my view of the process. Of engaging with them was very positive it's also very positive with the Treasury the Treasury ultimately the people if you like who draft the regulations with clearly with the regulators input so that that was the initial contact and then the regulations are given to the the regulator to to flesh out in terms of a rule book and that was a positive process but you you know you have to be aware that a regulator doesn't always come at every problem with with from the same point of view and I think Without sounding too trite, the regulator is always concerned about consumer detriment, as they should be, and therefore their default position might be: our job is to help consumers avoid taking any risk. I would sort of add to that: they should take avoid; consumers should avoid taking any risk they don't understand. When we were first in discussions with the regulator, their view was that peer-to-peer lending was inherently more risky than bank savings. Correct, we, we agree with that. There was some concern that some platforms were blurring the boundaries between the two and potentially giving the impression of a more savings-like product for something that was inherently riskier. And the regulator was uncomfortable with that. I think that was extremely fair. And and the regulator challenged industry to better standards of disclosure around the risks that consumers were taking. But they wanted to take it potentially a stage further, which was to say, actually, should we allow consumers to do this? Is it, is it right, are consumers able and informed, even with the right levels of disclosure, to make this kind of judgment? And our argument to that was very strongly, yes, they are. And frankly, it's a bit patronising to uh, prevent them from, from taking risks to, to generate a more meaningful return than they can through the risk-free rate, which may even potentially be lower than inflation. So that was a, a, a debate, and we satisfied the regulator in that debate by by demonstrating to them that our consumers who'd signed up to our service and other leading peer-to-peer lenders as well actually did understand the risks they were taking and they were making a balanced decision saying I do want to get a better return than I get by sticking it in a bank and earning the risk-free rate or something close to it, but I recognise that there's some risk to my capital in doing so. And the regulator was reasonably comfortable with that but did say in a few years' time we're going to do a review and see whether we got that decision right. They then announced a couple of years ago that they were going to do that review and we're in the process now of a review of, 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 of the regulatory status and, and we're having the same debate around whether or not consumers are making educated choices around the risk they're taking. And I'm a little bit concerned. That, that you know, some people might have changed, or some lobbying might have happened. Banks weren't terribly worried about us last time we were. You know, last time we had the debate, they were perhaps a little bit more concerned today. And the regulator has said that they are concerned around this particular risk. Do you envisage if they
0: do advance anything, it'll be around conduct of business? Or?
1: Well, within, in the consultation, one of the things they've asked about is whether or not people should be limited in the amount of assets that they commit, whether or not there should be even greater disclosures. And I believe that, that disclosures are pretty good. They can always be improved, and that's the way we should work with the regulator on, on making sure that everyone's very comfortable with the right level of disclosure. But there are quite a lot of financial products that I can go out and buy as a consenting adult that involves significant amounts of risks that are covered by a disclosure risk statement of some sort and not a test and I think a test introduces a a concern in in consumers' eyes that isn't necessarily justified for the the riskiness of the product compared to other products that they can purchase more freely
0: And and I agree with you, I think there's a lot of inconsistency in terms of the way products are perceived and the effective level of regulation that applies because of the perception rather often than the reality. Uh, Do you think that that's something that we need to spend more time working with regulators, for instance, to educate them around the risks, or do you think they're yeah, obviously there's been things like the sandbox and there's the engagement uh, initiatives that that have actually probably made it easier in the UK for for new businesses to to, to 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 talk with the regulator and get the regulator to understand what it is that they're doing but I, I mean do you think there needs to be more education uh, or a different way of approaching some of these uh, issues
1: I'm not sure I'd, I'd use the word education that's probably would sound wrong that the regulator needs educating but there's there's clearly a, a constructive dialogue and I think you're right that there is not always complete consistency and at the end of the day they're human so I, I think it's a, it's a question of, of constructive dialogue and, and trying to make your case. I mean I think you you mentioned the sandbox and that's, that's a really interesting I mean it's not directly relevant to what we do because we're an established business but I was actually involved in something called the Blackett Review of FinTech which was a, um, a group put together by George Osborne to, to sort of investigate whether the UK could, have, could, and if it could, how best to promote a sustainable advantage in, in fintech. And uh, the Sandbox was something that that group came up with. And it came out of, um, the, the chairman of the, of the report was a guy called Samar Walport, who was the government's chief scientist, who had a medical background and a research background. And he came up with this really interesting idea saying, you know, in the world of drug trials, at some point, you have to test drugs on humans, and there's a prize of you know, curing cancer, and there's a risk that you might kill some humans in, in trying to achieve the prize. So in some ways, it's a silly analogy, but it's a, it's a question of the quality part of the analogy was that you have to take managed risks, and you have to do so in an incredibly controlled environment. So you have to go to the drugs regulator or whatever he's called and say, we intend to do this test, and this is how we're going to manage the risk and this is the range of outcomes it could achieve and this is what we do if it goes wrong but ultimately we're going to have to try this out. The analogy was to go to a regulator and say we want to test a proposition on customers and we want to test the proposition on customers before we've invested enormous amounts of money in building technology and paying lawyers to tell us how to get through uh, regulation because if if customers aren't interested in the proposition there's no point making that investment but if we can test things out that could help. UK be more innovative and boost R&D spending, all that kind of good good stuff. And therefore, we go to a regulator and we say to them, if we're going to test this proposition, you know, this is the most people could lose, for argument's sake. And if they were to lose that, this is how we will pay them back, et cetera, et cetera. And once we've done that, we can do two things in that process. One, we can build a, a relationship with the regulator so they understand what we do. And two, we can go to our investors and say we've we've tested a proposition and it seems to have legs and consumers like it or businesses like it, whichever is appropriate. And therefore we want to raise some real money to develop it further. And we've got a route through regulation that potentially looks more purpose built. So I, as an initiative, I think it's fantastic. And it's interesting that it's been copied all over the world. I was going to say, it's been a real success. and yeah. Well, the SCA, the SCA um, I hope I'm, I'm not going to offend them by saying that they were slightly, they were in the room. So there were representatives from the SCA in the review. And as this discussion was going on, you know, some of them were going sort of slightly pale at the prospect. But now, of course, it, it, it's fantastic for them because it's, it's one of the reasons why they get held as amongst the. Far, uh, most far-sighted regulators in the world and 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 get to go and speak in uh, around the world at conferences talking about sandbox mm-hmm. and and in fact they're leading an initiative to create more more you know pan-european or even global sandboxes which is really exciting
0: yeah I, I agree i think it's been a real success i think it gives confidence to to the regulator and it gives confidence to the participants that are looking to develop business it's a uh, uh, it's a softening of the approach, which I think was necessary, particularly in this innovation, in this in this area of innovation. Let me ask you a, a separate thing that came out a little bit of your your answers earlier. Um, I mean, do, do you see as it was part of what you're doing, part of a democratization of the investment process? Um, I mean, did that come into your... your well, as a,
1: as a, as a slogan, uh, almost those words at the beginning, I mean, we, we, we believed in, 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 the, in the democratization of, of, of credit. Banks have had access to quite a, a decent yielding asset class for many years called consumer credit. And we thought, well, can we provide access to that to other consumers and therefore help, help them generate a better return than they get from bank savings products? And similarly, you know, the other side of the same coin is can we provide a fairer product fairer, better value, a better delivered product, uh, and, and democratization was a word that that, that we banded around. It's an, it's an interesting concept that uh, there's a,
0: a group of consumers in society that are effectively excluded from being able to engage in a, a, an activity which uh, is, is relatively sensible, profitable, and potentially safe. It, it, I, I would agree with you that if the disclosure is all there and the protections are in place, it seems... Inappropriate to exclude large chunks of society uh, on the basis that they're deemed not to understand the risks. So uh, it's interesting. That but if you
1: ask them directly, they get quite offended by that. Yes. So if you, I mean, we, we've got quite good evidence of this in terms of talking to our customer base, some of whom might fail some more established tests of sophisticated investors because they're not terribly wealthy. And, you know, I'm, I'm not sure it's appropriate that, that wealth is the only test of sophistication. But certainly retired people... Managing a portfolio, maybe of a hundred thousand pounds worth of investments, and maybe they've got ten thousand in peer-to-peer. Um, they're quite offended if, yes. if, if 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 it's suggested to them that they don't understand what they're doing. Well, let me take you on to a topic which is which
0: is more personal to to us to a certain extent. So, through your years of development of the business, you must have worked with professional services providers you know, quite closely for a number of years. Obviously, we're you know, one of the largest law large firms in the world, but we we see ourselves as. Really partnering with with businesses and you know, particularly maybe with 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 growing businesses as, as they're more reliant sometimes on, on what we provide um, I mean what's your experience what was your experience there what what could we as professional services providers uh, have done better what did we do well what, what could we have done better
1: so we made a decision right at the beginning that we would actually run quite a high-powered in-house function so so Given we were inventing a new business model in a in a highly regulated industry, we we really wanted to understand uh, how, how this would could or, or would affect us. So we employed a, you know, a general counsel who's actually gone on to become probably sort of world renowned as, as as one of if not the leading peer to peer alternative finance specialists, You probably know, and he quite quickly said, that's great, I'll take the lead on understanding how our unique proposition fits into the world of regulation, because I want to learn and I want to become a great expert in it. But also we need advice on general consumer credit type stuff, because regardless of what the regulator thinks about us wearing our peer-to-peer hat, we will have to always comply with things like the Consumer Credit Act anyway. So we we need proper, decent representation. And we we went to a a major London law firm, Hogan Lovells, and they took a view that we were interesting people and probably took a bit of a risk and did some good work for us early on and and we've worked with them for 14 years. So actually law firms, professional services, we've worked with the same accountancy firm, PwC, since since we started the business. Again, a company that probably took a bit of a risk on a startup and shows that some of those bets ultimately work. We've covered
0: a huge range of topics. you know, I'd like to say you know, thank you very much for, for coming and spending the time talking with us on this subject. Thanks to Giles Andrews, co founder of Zopa, for sharing his insights on the future of the fintech industry. Do look out for further podcasts from the global business law firm DLA Piper as we explore the influence of regulation and emerging technologies in business and wider society. Several podcasts, including ones focusing on fintech, artificial intelligence, cybersecurity, cloud computing, and other subjects, are already available for you to listen to on our website, or may be accessed via the Apple Podcast app on iOS or SoundCloud, as well as other apps and services for Android or other phones. Do also note that we will, on Tuesday, 15th October, at ETC Venues, 155 Bishopsgate, be hosting our widely acclaimed DLA Piper European Technology Summit 2019. This is a major biennial conference attended by over 350 senior legal and commercial executives. We're looking forward to eminent industry executives joining us for the panel discussion. I will be moderating on the day under the banner of competitors or collaborators, the Financial Services versus FinTech Challenge. Do follow DLA Piper on our social media channels and look out for further details due to be published soon allowing you to register to join us for that exciting full day exploring a variety of aspects of digital transformation and emerging technologies across multiple industries with industry leaders from across Europe and beyond. Thank you from me, Martin Bartlam, International Group Head of Finance, Projects and Restructuring and FinTech Global Co-Chair at global law firm DLA Piper.